Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you. If you're just joining us today, I want to welcome you to the Fourth Avenue family. Just to let you know you are coming to us at a time where we are grieving and we are grasping hold of the hope of the one who raises the dead. And we're confident in that. We're hurting in this season of life, but we're also healing as we see God who is restoring and making all things new. And we see that happening even as we speak. Um, what we're doing this week is I'm sharing with you the message that uh, I had actually written a couple weeks ago for last week, and uh, and, and we, we went a different way as we, we grieved together and we worshiped together uh, last week. Uh, next week, I'll give you a sense of kind of, we're going to, we are going to do Revelation here. We're going to kind of let that go and, and go slightly different way with some different voices in our own spiritual community here and, uh, and listen as the shepherds lead us in, in God's direction for where we're going in the future. And I want to begin today, though, just with the reading of the text. And um, you can have the words of the scripture if you want. You can pull that out. But I encourage you, this is a vision. So as much as possible, if you can imagine it, we're going to enter into hopefully that vision today. So it's helpful if you can kind of uh, be thinking in that way now. If it helps you to close your eyes, great. If you follow along, that's great. Let's read uh, the word of God from Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking, the voice of Jesus, spoke like a trumpet and said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I pray as the psalmist did so many years ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm convinced as I come to this text that we all, uh, especially in times like this, have a little Aaron Burr in us. Aaron Burr, of course, is the famous, maybe the infamous uh, nemesis of Alexander Hamilton, and perhaps some of you have heard his story recently depicted in the play Hamilton, and, and Aaron Burr has a song that really is actually a prayer that comes up again throughout the play, where he cries out for what he really wants. Maybe some of you know exactly 
what that is, but I want to read the, the dialogue that leads up to it. It's actually a prayer. He says, God, I want to build something that's going to outlive me. Is that part of your heart that longs for destiny to step into the future? Hamilton says, what do you want, Burr? And he says, I want to be. Does anybody know where Burr wants to be? Anybody know? You can say it. I want to be in the room where it happens. And in this moment, of course, he's talking about the room where they get together and they dream about what this country we all live in is going to be like. And they make deals like New York's going to be the center of the financial power and D.C. is going to be the center of political power. And he says, I would love to be there when this country is being formed and shaped and created. That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? If you're like me, there are other rooms I'd love to be in. I'd love to be in the rooms of creativity. Have you ever thought about how interesting it would be to be in a patent office in 1909? Now, that doesn't sound exciting. Unless in your mind's eye, you can look across the room and see this funny-haired guy named Albert Einstein, who, while he's stamping documents, I don't know, dreams up quantum revolution as he's sitting there. And recast the vision for physics as we know it. He does it in a patent office. Wouldn't it be cool to be in the room where creativity happens? remember in middle school doing a book report on, uh, on somebody that was writing about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wouldn't it be great to be in the room where peace happens? Well, if you know anything about that time in the Kennedy administration, the world came closer to the brink of nuclear holocaust than any other time in human history as Russia and the United States stood poised at the brink of global war. And what we found out is later on some secret communication went happening went on in the rooms in the White House and in the Kremlin and brought global peace. Wouldn't it be great to be in the room where things like that happen? I don't know if you're like me. Part of it, i got to be honest and admit why I want to be, especially in a world like ours today, in chaos and uncertainty. I'm just owning this, and I suspect I'm not alone. I want to be in the room where whatever happens, because I like to be a little bit in control at least. I want to know what's going on. I want to have my hand uh, working in things. Or at very least, I want to see some steady hands on the wheel as we're going forward. And if you notice, that's exactly what the Apostle John gets when we come into this place in the book of Revelation. Only it's not the rooms where little things happen or even big things happen like we've talked about. It is the room where everything happens, where it all happens, where God himself is standing over all of human history and destiny and purpose and vision and into the throne room of God we are taken in this vision to the room where it all happens. In a book of Revelation that's described in some places an apocalypse that pulls back the curtain and reveals things as we see here. It is called a prophecy elsewhere in chapter 1 where God is speaking to the now and to the forever and it's also a letter as we felt in recent weeks that's speaking to real people in real churches in real situations and on through human history. And in all of this John paints this picture for us that's given directly he says in chapter 1 as a testimony of Jesus Christ who gives us a vision that we all long for, whether we know it or not, to step into the room where it all happens. Now, as we do this, and I want to walk through this experience, understand that when we enter the vision, we enter in an in-between place. You know what it feels like, doesn't it? To feel squeezed in between something. And it happens all throughout life. You might have graduated high school or college, and you are in between what you know clearly and what you don't know yet. 
and it feels like squeezing in that in-between place. You may feel the in-between between the diagnosis and the result. You may feel the in-between between an announcement and what happens next. You may feel the in-between of a virus and the vaccine that will set us free. We know what it feels like to be in an in-between place. And I want you to understand when we look at this vision, don't just rip it out of its context. One thing that helps me study the Bible is always to look what happens right before and what right happens right after and understand this vision in the room where it happens takes place squeezed in between two things. Can you feel it? On the one hand, in chapters 2 and 3 that we just went through, in chapters 2 and 3, what you have is the magnificent mess of the church. Can we understand that? Do you feel that? The magnificent mess of the church. Go back and look again in chapters 2 and 3 and what you find in church after church after church 2,000 years ago. What you will find today, please do not be shocked that wonderful things happen in church, and please do not be shocked that the church is a mess. It always has been. And Jesus walks amidst the churches, and he gives letters, and he speaks personally to them about their magnificence and their beauty and the mess that is everyday human beings living life out together in church. Do you feel that on one side? Do you feel pushed maybe a little bit by the messiness of church life? And then go look at chapter 6 sometime, and what you find is they're breaking the seals. What does that mean? It is the cosmic chaos of the world. Here's just a couple of things that you experience there. War, bloodshed, death, pestilence. By the way, if you look up uh, on the thesaurus, other options for pestilence, the first word that comes up as an option is virus. Do you feel what it feels like between being between the messiness of church life and the cosmic chaos of the world literally going to hell in a handbasket on the other side? What, it, what is the word from God in an in-between place? Does God have something to say? Or better yet, does God give us a vision for how to live and move in the in-between? Quickly, before we enter the vision, one more thing to understand is there is a very strange pause right in the middle of the story. It says John is ushered into the throne room, and in verse 1 it says, God tells him, I'm going to show you what will soon take place. God says, I'm going to show you in this vision what's going to happen next. And then he proceeds for two chapters not to do that. Go, go look at it. Oh, in chapter 6, you get the seals breaking and the world going crazy and all of that. That's what's going to happen next. But God says, I'm going to tell you what happens next, and then he proceeds not to do it. Why does he pause for this vision in this in-between moment? It's almost as if, think of all the things we try to figure out in the book of Revelation and the world and all that. Listen, it's almost as if God says it's more important to see what happens in this room where it all happens than to figure out what's going to happen next. It's almost as if God's saying, if you can just see what's always going on in this celestial room, it'll be a little bit easier to handle all of the uncertainties and the chaos of the things that will happen next. And God says, I'll talk about it, but we must pause first to look into this room. So I want to do that. I want you to enter with me, and I want you to notice the throne chairs that are all around the room. And again, it really helps if you kind of imagine this. Think about their throne chairs all around the room. There are 24 of them. 
in this particular room. There's 24 throne chairs that are all around the room. And I want you to think about this. What's the significance of this? Numbers are symbolic. They are for us too, right? We have lucky seven and unlucky 13, and we got Fibonacci sequence and prime numbers and may the fourth be with you and all that great stuff, right? Jewish people even more saw the symbolism of numbers. Can you imagine what two sets of 12, 24, two sets of 12, 12 elders sitting on 12 thrones might mean to Jewish believers and to early Christians? What would the number 12 say to a Jewish person who had lived their faith out of the Old Testament community? What would 12 mean to them? course the 12 tribes of Israel what for an early Christian what would be the significance of 12 elders 12 leaders what would be the significance for the early Christians well of course the 12 apostles so here's a way I want you to think about it because for me God's invites us to not just imagine the vision then but picture what it might look like today right so so what are the 12 and the 12 for them back then I kind of picture the posters in in a kid's room. I picture when I was a kid, the baseball cards we used to trade and the football cards we used to trade. I'll give you a Levi for an Issachar. <laughs> I'll give you a Simon for a Judas, right? And I gotta wanna complete the whole set. You, you understand, the thrones around this vision room are the icons and the heroes that would capture the attention of the early church. So I'm gonna give some suggestions, but I really want you to fill in your imagination what might the chairs be filled with if we were in the vision today? Who would be sitting in the chairs around the room? And if you're OCD, no, there are not 24 of them, but we're close enough. <laughs> Who would be in the chairs? I, I just want to suggest a few, and as we're doing it, I encourage you, seriously, this will be more meaningful if you add your own imagination to the vision who might be in the chairs i think of people who, who live as icons and heroes of wealth in our society i think of bill and melinda gates or the buffets that might sit in these chairs someone we look up to not just because they've made a lot of money maybe they've done good things with the money well i suspect because the day in which we find ourselves talking today we don't know what name's going to be on the other chair but it'll be one of two it'll be trump or biden right at least for the next week or month or whatever it is because some people are going to be sitting in positions of power pretty soon. And their names are going to be on those chairs back there. Or, or it may be people in the music industry, right? So we might have Drake sitting in the chair over there. Or we are in Country Music USA, right? So you might have Taylor Swift. I have to say, because my wife is here, I'll put Keith Urban in the chair for you, sweetheart. Fine. Who else would you put there? Maybe some athletes, right, in, in the chairs there in, in the back of this side of the room. I think of Eddie George or maybe Derrick Henry with a ring on his finger, right? Or Tiger Woods, just insert the people in all of that. Or, or, or maybe in, in the arts, right? So you think of people that, that play music, not just the kind of the popular music, but the classical music. I think of Yo-Yo Ma and Isak Perlman. Just fill in the gap. Who, who might you add to the list of the names? And, and on this side of the room, let's just imagine all of the people that would fit in the places and the people that we would turn our attention to. Then I want to shift a little bit to this side of the room. What if it weren't just people that capture our attention? Maybe it were groups of people or even situations that capture our attention. Again, I'm encouraging you, as you add your own thoughts to the process, and as we're doing it, this will come back later, which chair is capturing your attention the most right now? So this one I think about right here, this is the chair of whatever keeps you up at night. 
What is it that steals hours of sleep from you? That's what's sitting in this chair. Or, or in this chair over here, I think about what uh, Ignatius called constellations back in the day. What lights your fire? What wakes you up? What gives you energy and strength, even when you're tired, to kind of run out to the day one more time? What lights you up? In the chairs back there, I think of loved ones. Who are the loved ones that surround you in your life? Your family members, your parents, your children, your spouse, your closest friends that are with us. And then I think of a chair over there, and I've I got faces in my mind right now, people that I love who have already gone on before us. Do we have a face or two in the chair? Someone that captures our attention at any given time? Then I picture back there in that room, visions and dreams. What visions and dreams wake you up? You understand, we are surrounded in this room all the time by people and faces and ideas and situations that turn our attention and gaze to them. And I suspect if those people were actually in the room, some of them are, but those people were actually in the room, where would all of us be looking right now? Where would we all be looking? Staring at the chairs, and I'll be looking at the chairs, and that's what we've got to see. Because that is precisely what does not happen in this picture. And this vision, please get it. The attention of the people and the situations that capture every moment in our lives. Their eyes are fixed on the one who sits in the center of the room where it all happens. And we're not looking at them. And John isn't looking at them. He's watching them bow down. And any symbol of authority and significance and meaning, they lay down in front of the one in the center of the room where it all happens. Why is that? Because they can't help but say it long before it was a song that's been sung for generations. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, completely other. Don't stain glass the word. Completely other. Set aside for a unique and uncommon purpose. Holy. Why do they say it three times? Oh, Hebrew grammar lesson, they don't have superlatives, fast, fast, or fastest. They don't have an er, yes. So they got to say it three times again and again. There is no one more other, more unique, more amazing, more separate, more transcendent than the one who sits in the center of the room. And even everyone who sits on their throne knows it in an instant. And they can't take their eyes off of it. Holy. The other thing that strikes me about that word, have you ever noticed... One place, there's a thousand examples, Exodus 30, 29, you can look at it. Do you know what happens anytime anything uncommon, I'm sorry, common and mundane and meaningless comes in contact with the holy? What happens? It instantly becomes what? Holy itself. You take a common cup and touch it to the altar in the old covenant, that cup becomes sacred. If you take a piece of dirt and a dried up old bush on a mountain in the middle of the wilderness and set it on fire with the presence of God, all of a sudden you better take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. You come into the new covenant, you see the skin rotting off the flesh of a leprous man who nobody can get near. 
and he's made whole and clean and set apart for God's purposes. Why? Because he comes in physical contact with the Holy One of Israel, the Christ, who heals him by touching him. And he becomes holy. And you just did it. Please don't underestimate what we just did. A simple, common piece of bread and a simple, common sip of wine becomes the body and the blood of the resurrected one who's hosting the meal. Why? Because the Holy One changes everything he comes in contact with. And that's why the most powerful people in the world that can move us with song and with legislation and whatever else know the real thing when they see it and they bow down to the center of the room of the one who holds all of this in his hand. Why do they do that? Because he's holy. And it says because he is worthy. Worthy. Worship, we use that term. Again, take the stained glass out of it. Worship. It's what we ever get, whatever it is that we give ultimate worth to. And if you are like me, I do that with the things around the room. There have been times in my life when I spent more energy and passion on the outcome of an election in a time like this than I ever would with the one in the center of the room. And there are times, even today, I'll spend more energy on my fantasy football team than I will on what God is up to in the world right here or in our families or in thinking about the past or the future or whatever's keeping me awake at night. In this vision, John pulls back the curtain and he says, can you glimpse for a moment at the only one who has ever been worth my full and greatest attention? Now, this is so important. It does not mean these chairs do not matter. What it does mean is that I look at them through the gaze at the one who stands in the center of the room. And then all of a sudden, those things that are incredibly significant in my life take on their ultimate perspective in light of the one who holds all of it together, even in the in-between places. All of the people here say, we're, we're going to step down and we're going to bow down and we're going to honor the one that's in the center of the room. For a moment, let's just think about what that does when we allow ourselves to do it, to really give our attention our focus. Now that doesn't mean we walk around with Bibles all day long, but it does mean that, that every part of my life is somehow is compass aligned to the one that's in the middle of everything. What happens in moments like that? It's like John says, if you can get this, if you can give your focus, if you can give your attention to the one that's running it all, all of a sudden there will be these moments, not just for him, but for us, where we will say, in our hearts or in our souls or even out loud. There God is. There he is. He'll pull the curtain aside and he'll say, right now, God is showing up in this place and in that place for a moment, in the in-between place. Between the messiness of the church and the chaos of the world, the curtain is drawn. And can you picture it? John says, oh my gosh, there he is. God's right there. Here's the promise it can happen again and again and again because the Holy Spirit who dances before the throne invites us to pull the curtain back. And can I tell you this, this incredible thing for me, it's just in simple ways, right? Like I was thinking, I was thinking through how this might happen and I, I experienced it even as I was trying to write about it. 
right? I know this is kind of a geek moment. Yours comes in different ways. Even as I read this, you'll see it'll open up to other experiences. But when I was writing what I'm about to do for you, it kind of happened in a way that happens for me. Can I, can I read this to you? I wrote this three and a half weeks ago. I just started riffing. Part of my sermon process, sometimes, and this is like a new thing I'm trying to do. I'm just kind of riffs. I'm just writing. I'm just pounding the keyboard for a moment. And this is what came out. Have you had those moments when you're swept up in the Spirit's embrace? Oh, hold on. That language feels too churchy. Have you ever had a moment when you just know that something, some power bigger than you is showing up? And the moment steals your breath and you have the deep sense that something is happening bigger than you can imagine? When the ordinariness and earthiness of this life for just a moment begins to dissolve into a sense of wonder and wideness, weightiness and gravity, almost as if there's something otherworldly touching the here and now. John says, don't be afraid to see it. Don't be afraid to say it. There God is. To come in the warmth of a grandchild's cheek. Or the tired but hopeful eyes of a loved one in their precious final days. Or it could be a dream, a dream that seems more weighty than most, fantastic colors in a dream that wakes you with a sense that something holy just happened. Or as simple as the mist rising on the lake in the silence of an early morning as you pull your arm back to cast the first lure on an unsuspecting fish. Or the way so many have had this encounter for ages when you find yourself opening up this ancient sacred book, starting to read, and then all of a sudden you stumble and stare and wonder as words become an encounter with the one, the glorious one who wrote them. And in that moment, it stopped being a sermon preparation for me. And I worshiped in my offices. It's like, oh my gosh, God, I'm, I'm writing a sermon and you just did it. Has it happened for you? I'm with my brother who you're going to hear in just a moment. Next weekend, before again, so many things have happened, we went to the Black Hills and I went out walking in the Black Hills, just taking a moment, invited God to be along as if he needed to be invited, but inviting my attention to the one who was always there. And there's this thing that hit me, the, the wind, Gary, you, I don't know where you are, but I think this happens to you, the wind blew on me, and that's, that's a little thing with me and God. I just knew he was there in that moment. And then all of a sudden, in that period of time, he took me on a journey in like minutes. He took me back to a time by a West Texas lake when the wind blew and I just knew he was there. But the part that surprised me is he took me back even further when I was a little boy, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and every time it snowed, I still kind of do this, but every time it snowed, I wanted to rush out before anybody got out there and climb the fence and walk out in the park and pretend that nobody had ever been there before, and I'm walking in the snow, and I thought I was walking alone, and sometimes I felt really, really alone, and these, these three words came up in me when I was thinking through this and feeling the wind on my face. I heard these three words inside of me that said, that was you? That was you? Oh, I know you were there in that Texas moment. I know you were there in these other places. But when I was a little boy and didn't know what was going to happen next when my dad died, that was you walking with me in the snow. And I remember a few years ago, well, probably more years ago than just a few, a, a chaos time in our church life in the past. Not this one, but the one I was at then. Before a season when I ran away from God, things were blowing up, and I remember walking out at Radnor Lake week after week, and I was saying, God, what's going on? What are you going to do? Give me some wisdom. And I heard nothing, and I felt nothing. 
And in this moment when the breeze hit me two weeks ago, I heard these words, oh, that was you. You were there when I didn't feel it and when I didn't have the wisdom and I didn't have the insight and I didn't know where we were going, he was still there. And so in this moment, all of a sudden, I saw what the vision I think was supposed to do. To go from there God is to what? Here God is. He's not just there in some distant place. He's not just there in a text from 2,000 years ago or a vision that happened so long ago. He is right here in our in-between place. And I invite you this week in whatever way that you choose to do it. In a fishing boat, on a walk, in a text, in whatever way. Music. To let God show up again. Peek the curtain by and say, I'm right here. So I invited one of my dearest friends in life, Connor, thanks, to come up. He shared what he's about to share with you. Shepherds, we hear you. Testimonies matter. What you're about to hear is the testimony in form of a song that God gave him in a very personal way to show us that the God we worship and see in the vision is still showing up today. And then after that, we'll have a moment of silence and a final song. share this song I thought I'd share a little bit of the context and I hope that for you it takes on its own either literal or metaphoric meaning for you but I thought I would share a little bit about um, the meaning that it had for me um, I was on a plane about a year ago on the way home from a work trip back to Mercy Spring and I was overcome with emotion sitting there in the aisle seat and words just started coming to me, and so I started writing them down, which ultimately became this song. Um, but the reason why it was emotional is because it was relevant to the, the, the pieces of my life leading up to that point and in the future. And so I was pondering my relationship with my two children. My wife and I have been married for six and a half years, and we have two children, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And I was thinking about my relationship with them, and I was also thinking about my relationship with my Heavenly Father. And uh, I grew up in a home in which the gospel was preached. I grew up in a home in which love was shown and grace was extended. And my story, my testimony also includes pain and sadness. It includes grief. It includes trauma and abuse. It includes sadness and loneliness and fear. And that's a lot to bring into a relationship a lot to bring into a family where I'm trying to parent my two children. And so this song at times for me has been a prayer to God. The song has at times been a reminder to me of who is ultimately in control, like Amy was just mentioning. And I hope that there's a time where I get to share this with my children and it becomes an invitation for them to turn to God. One kid on each leg 
football with the all-stars. I'll drop my bags in the office. But they don't let me get that far. And all I can think is I don't know how to do all that you think I can. I'm tall and I'm strong, but soon you'll understand. I'm working through pain, I pray you never feel. I'm going through fire to finally heal. I hope one day you look back and know you were worth it. Just who you are, my loves you deserve it. A father that's present, loving and faithful. Totally smitten, patient and graceful. And I'm trying to be. The dad you don't know you need yet. You've already taught me so much about what's truly worth it. My dreams of fame and glory, no, cannot compare to this. To be chosen as the one to show you a father's precious plan. A story he wants you to know of a God who became man. And all I can pray is, though I don't know how to do all that you think I can, he's willing and able with power in his hands. To take all your shame, make you perfect and blameless. Rejoice with the heavens and give you a name that is holy and free, forgiven and flawless. Beloved and cherished, partakers of promise. An heir to the Father, with Jesus our Savior. Blessed and righteous, with joy and with favor. And I promise that he... But dad, you don't know you need it. And I've lived enough life now to know what is coming. In faith, times of pain, times please just keep running. To Jesus, our friend and gentle redeemer, where with arms wide open, with safety and freedom, he'll keep you in the love of the Father, which can't be undone. He will keep you in the love of your Father, which can't be undone. And I promise that he, but dad, you don't know you Connor. Just want as Mark's coming up and we're before we do our last song, just take 30 seconds if you would in silence. It's just a, a foretaste of what I invite you to do over the coming days at some point in some way. And it could be an image of Jesus or it could be the contemplative way that that doesn't imagine God in some particular way. In one way or another, look at whatever is most important to you in the chairs on the outside through the lens. <clears throat> a focus 
of a God who stands in the center of the room where it all happens. Let's just take 30 seconds of silence and then uh, we'll worship.